Thank you, Brandon. And thank you, Praise Team. I really appreciate your ministry. And sometimes we don't recognize the significance of the effort that goes into this in the ministry, but I appreciate these guys. We had a great time of, of prayer beforehand. And thank you for letting me be, be here with you this morning. Good morning. No, no, no. I know I'm a strange face. I've been told that most of my life, but you can do better than that. Good morning. Good morning. All right, that's better. I was so grateful when uh, Pastor Peter invited me to bring this passage because this is something that is uh, uh, very important to me, very meaningful, and it's always a privilege to open God's Word and teach it. And so uh, before we get into this passage, why don't we pause, ask the Lord to, to touch our hearts, touch our minds, and to help us receive what His Word shares with us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. If it weren't for your love, uh, none of us really could be here. Thank you that you have reached out to us, that you have revealed yourself to us through the living word, Jesus Christ. And Father, again, we know that if it weren't for him, that we could not have this relationship with you. But also through the written word, what you want us to know for living life with you and with each other. Thank you for this opportunity to look into this passage and to consider what you have for us today. We ask right now that you would touch our hearts and our minds, help us to receive your word, help us to be open to any discomfort that it may bring, and open to the changes that it calls us to. Father, I ask that you would communicate your truth despite the speaker, his weaknesses, his failings, his frailties. Accomplish your purposes this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Loving our neighbors. I suspect most of us who've grown up in the church are very familiar with the passage, love thy neighbor as thyself. Uh, it's kind of one of those founding passages, but what does that mean? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? And in today's society, when we think of love, we have all kinds of reference points. We have all kinds of images. I can say that I love my cat or my dog. If, if any of you have a cat that you love, God bless you, but that's a special gift. I love my dog. Uh, I love ice cream. I love my favorite pasta. Uh, I was associate pastor in Long Island for uh, several years, a lot of Italians in, in that church, and they used to fix pa uh, pasta for me. And they found out how much I love pasta, and they called me Pasta John. And, and I liked that, and because I loved pasta. And I, can, I can love uh, a particular group, singing, I love everything, but what does that mean, and how does that apply to this passage, loving my neighbor as myself? And honestly, when we think of love in the context of relationship, we like to think of it as something that is first safe. I don't want to get hurt. If I'm going to love somebody, I really don't want to be hurt. It's going to be safe. Next, I'd like for it to be clean and neat. No complications. Not anything that that's, gets ugly and messy. I, neat and clean. Third, I'd like for it to be easy. I don't want this to be a difficult, challenging time or uh, anything that really costs me anything. I want it to be easy. And fourth, I want it to be comfortable. Don't get me out of my comfort zone. I want it to be comfortable. So if you can show me the person 
that I can love that will accommodate all of, this, all of these, then I'm great. I'm all for loving that person. Several weeks ago, Pastor Scott Taylor uh, used the, the references that's popular today. It's either yummy or yucky. And I love that. How many of you remember that? It's yummy or yucky. We don't associate love with anything that's yucky. We want to apply it to all that's yummy. But is that what the passage means? It was originally in the Mosaic Law, uh, but in the passage this morning, it's referred to, and, and Jesus reinforces and he teaches on what it means to love, and then who is my neighbor? And there's a lot of confusion. Does this mean that when my neighbor gets up at six o'clock on Saturday morning and mows the lawn right outside my bedroom window, I'm supposed to have warm, fuzzy feelings? I don't think so, I hope not. What does it mean to love my neighbor? Well, the passage this morning, and you are very familiar with it, it's Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 27, if you have your Bibles, uh, hard copy, you want to turn to it. Uh, some of us are old and we've, we still like the, the hard copy. If you have your, your uh, app on your phone or if you want to watch it on the screen. Uh, this is a very familiar, familiar passage referred to as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let's look at it. We're going to pause at a couple of points and, and explain the context. But as we go through this, and we get this background, we're going to get this notion of what it really means to love and then love our neighbors. And then this sets the stage for the next four weeks to see how we as a church, Calvary Church, can apply the truth of this passage in the various scenarios surrounding us. So let's look at the passage. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the setting of this, a lawyer is not like what we think of as lawyers. It's not somebody who represents uh, us in legal cases. This is, uh, in the Jesus time, a legal scholar of Mosaic law. This was an expert in Hebrew law. He was one of the religious leaders. And the religious leaders really had it out for Jesus. They wanted to get him uh, put in a position where he would make a mistake and they could discredit him so that he would not have all the followers. The religious leaders at the time were very focused on adherence to religious codes, rules, regulations, and rituals. They believed that if they kept their rules, regulations, rituals, the religious uh, codes, they were more righteous. And the more they kept those codes, the more righteous they were. Whereas Jesus comes on the scene and he has put that notion aside. In fact, he's insulted them multiple times, focusing more on the relationship between us and the Heavenly Father. They didn't really appreciate it. They didn't appreciate some of the statements that he made. And so they were looking for a way to nail him. And so this, this scribe, this Old Testament scholar, wanted to put Jesus on the spot. So he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, uh, strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on, and the lawyer asked the question, if you go ahead and put the next slide up, 
what you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. But this lawyer, this scribe, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And so Jesus gives a parable. And a parable is just a short story, a fictitious, a fictitious account that's designed to teach a lesson. Now let me interject here. Some of the folks who've grown up in the church, you've heard this story many, many times. We're going to review some things that you may know, but understand there are probably people, if not in this room, listening online, who don't know this information. And so uh, you may consider it review, but when we get to the application, I hope you will uh, absorb it. So he tells this story of a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. We've got some slides here that give some geography, uh, some maps. Let's take a look at it. If you notice down in the bottom of the page here, you'll see Jerusalem and at the bottom of the red lines. And if you follow the bottom right line, it goes up, uh, up on the map, north and, and northeast to Jericho. What you may not be able to tell is that in the course, it's about 18 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho, but it descends about 3,200 feet. So it is a steep descent and it's a very arid area. And uh, if you hit the next slide, this is actually a picture of what that area looks like today. And the next slide is of what is supposedly that Roman road that was built that went down from Jerusalem downhill to Jericho. Now, at the time, it was a known fact that if you were traveling alone, you were at great risk because there were bandits who would hide in the rocks. And even in this slide, you can see at the top of the hill, if somebody's coming around that curve and they're coming down the slope, somebody could be hiding in these rocks and jump them. Now, it, was, it is determined today that many of those bandits were actually Samaritans and that they would come from the neighboring uh, area of Samaria down, and we'll get to some of the significance of that, and they would attack the Jewish people who were traveling. And so this is what the, uh, the religious leaders are hearing when Jesus tells this. Uh, how many of you are watching the series uh, The Chosen? Anybody? A number of folks. If you remember in the, uh, the two episodes about Jesus and the woman at the well, and he heals the Samaritan man, he was crippled because he injured himself in an attack. And it was this kind of, of situation. So this traveler in the parable comes around a corner, unbeknownst to him, there are bandits ready to pounce on him. They jump him, they injure him, they beat him and leave him for half dead. And along down the road comes a religious leader. Now, to the audience, they're going to think that the religious leader is a hero. So they expect one of these religious leaders, go ahead and hit the, the scripture, the next passage. Uh, uh, first a priest came and then a Levite came, and when they came to the place, saw him, they passed by on the other side. There's a number of reasons why they may have done this. Some say that they uh, did not want to become ritually unclean. Their religious practices would prevent them from touching somebody that was contaminated, so they wanted to be, uh, remain clean. 
Others say that uh, they were afraid of the same thing happening to them, so they didn't want to risk themselves and put themselves in that kind of situation. Uh, some say that they just had a, uh, a destination that they had to get to, and they didn't want to be inconvenienced. But for whatever reason, as Jesus is telling the story, the people that everyone would expect to be the heroes turn out to be the duds. And uh, they pass along the other side, but then Jesus throws in this surprise. He says, uh, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Go ahead and hit the next uh, passage. Which, uh, no, it, it, we've missed one. It says that after he bound him up, he took him to an inn and told uh, the innkeeper to uh, take care of him. He left, gave him two days' earnings to cover all of his needs. and says, if there's anything that he needs after, the, I will come by and I will pay it. And then Jesus said, uh, so which of these uh, proved to be the neighbor? And uh, the, the religious leader said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, within these passages, there is this, the answer to the question, what does love mean and who are the neighbors? And so the first thing that I want to give you this morning is this idea Pastor uh, Peter and I share the same uh, notion of giving the big idea. The big idea of this whole passage is loving your neighbor means applying compassion to meet deep needs. Applying compassion. Earlier in the passage it said uh, when the Samaritan saw him, he had compassion. Now, you probably didn't come thinking that you were going to get a Greek lesson, but the Greek word for compassion there is rooted in the word splachna. Isn't that a delightful word? Say it with me. Splachna. Oh, come on. You can do it. Splachna. That doesn't sound warm or fuzzy. It actually has to do with the internal organs, the intestines. You know, we think of the seat of the emotions as our heart. But in the first century, they thought that the, the stomach and the intestines, that was the seat of the emotions. And the picture here is when the Samaritan saw this poor guy beaten up on the side of the road, his stomach turned because of his concern for him. And if you've ever had your stomach tied up in knots for a good reason, that's where they get this idea. He had compassion. And it was such that it moved him to action. Now back to what I said at the, the introduction. We so often think of love as this warm, fuzzy emotion. This is not based on feeling that warm, fuzzy, romantic, uh, emotional. It's not as much to do with feeling as it is seeing a need and taking tangible steps to meet those deep needs. So the, the point of the passage, and for the next few weeks, is applied compassion to meet deep needs. And there are four areas, even if, first, even if it's risky. 
For this Samaritan to stop meant that he was subjecting himself to the potential prospect of experiencing the same fate. It's very possible that this could have been set up so that whoever stops to render aid could then become the victim. So he knew that by stopping and taking this kind of action, this kind of tangible meeting of needs, applying compassion, put himself at risk, grave danger, and possibly even the threat of death. But it did not keep him from stopping and taking those steps. In current times, there are two examples of this that come to mind. They both relate to, to Bridgeport. I've I become good friends with a, a couple, and she, every Monday night, is part of a, a ministry in uh, Bridgeport where they go into the projects, uh, the, the most difficult area, and they have a mentoring time with some of the children there. But they were telling stories about there have been times where in, within the same block of where they're meeting and meeting with uh, helping these children, gunshots are heard, and then the, the police cars come screaming in and all the lights, and they have to shut everything down and get the kids uh, into safety, and then they have to take off. And that's the nature of the context in which they work. And they don't do that because they enjoy the thrill, the adrenaline. They don't like to expose themselves to danger. It's risky. It's not safe. It's risky, but they're willing to risk in order to meet the needs of those dear children. And for that reason, she's one of my heroes, a hero of loving your neighbor. Another, uh, several years ago, um, uh, Terry Wilcox used to be the, uh, the director of the uh, Bridgeport Rescue Mission. And he invited me to come to chapel one time. And afterwards, I'm speaking with one of the staff members. And her son had just graduated from police academy. And she was expressing to me how concerned she was about his well-being and his safety. And, and I assured, I knew the police department he was going to, into. And I assured her that this is a good group. It's a good city uh, that, that he's going to be well taken care of. Well, just a couple of weeks ago, I saw him and I was talking to him and I said, you know, your mom was sharing with me about six years ago about how concerned she was about you becoming a cop. And he laughed and he shook his head and he said, you know, Rev, she works right in the middle, sometimes of the worst part of Bridgeport. She is exposed to far more risk than I ever am. But she didn't see it that way. She saw that there, was, there is a tangible need that she was positioned and equipped to help address, and she did it despite the risk. So it's applied compassion to meet deep needs, even if it's risky. But not only that, even if it's messy. He had to get off his animal and go over and uh, take care of uh, the needs, uh, bind up the wounds, applied what was first century medicinal application, and get himself bloody. You can't help someone who's been beaten up and physically lift them onto uh, the donkey and not get contaminated. 
And these days, that's even uh, more strategic. But applied compassion meets deep needs even if it's messy. I have a hero in this regard as well. A number of years ago, uh, I was involved in a church, and we would uh, each summer go to northern Saskatchewan in Canada, and we, had, we hosted wilderness uh, camps for First Nations. In, in America, the tribal uh, folks are referred to as Native Americans, but in Canada, they're referred to as First Nations. And up in northern Saskatchewan in the reserves, uh, there is an awful lot of uh, alcoholism and drug abuse, and there's a lot of sexual abuse of, of the girls. It's very common for, uh, for adolescent girls to be abused by a relative or uh, a neighbor. And a lot of the children suffer from fetal alcohol syndrome. And so these children coming in, we have 40 or 50 coming in to this wilderness camp, and we set up tents. A lot of them had some serious problems. And uh, this poor little guy, he was about five years old. It was his first time being away from home. And he was in a tent with his, his sister. And uh, he was all nervous. And in the middle of the night, he lost control of his bowels. And when he woke up, everything inside the, the tent was a mess. I mean, his clothes, his uh, sleeping bag, his sister's sleeping bag, and in the whole tent. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of the leaders. and. Uh, if I had been noble, I would have, when I heard that, I thought, okay, uh, I better go help this guy out. But before any of us could do it, uh, a college student, and I'm going to call him Simon for privacy's sake. Uh, Simon was a pre-med student at a, uh, an Ivy League school. And he went on to uh, go into med school and became, now he's a very prestigious doctor, but at the time he was a college student. And he when he heard about it, he did not hesitate. He went over, he got this little guy and got him all cleaned up, got some fresh clothes, got his sister out, and then he went in the tent and he cleaned up all of that mess. Why would he do such a thing? Because he enjoyed the mess? Of course not. It's because he had compassion for that little guy. Compassion to where he was willing to apply it in a tangible way. He loved his neighbor as himself that day. The third area, it's not just meeting deep needs even if it's risky or messy, but even if it's costly. He didn't just take him and drop him off at, at a uh, and in and then take off, he told the innkeeper, here's two days wages. Now you stop and think, break your salary into five days and then take two of those days and consider that's what he applied to help take care of this guy with the promise that when he came back, he would pay any additional debt that was necessary. And we see that today, you may not recognize it, but uh, Parents of teenagers, any of you, have, or not just teenagers, kids. Any of you have kids in sports? Yeah. The equipment, hockey equipment, football equipment, the camps. You know, I'm not finding any examples of equipment being given away and camps being free. Band camps, all of those things, all the way up into college, parents do that because they love their children. 
And we had it with our boys. Now, our kids, our boys have been out of the home for uh, 15 plus years now. But when they were in those, those activities, we didn't have a lot of money, but we found the money. It cost us. We put it in because we loved our kids. Applied compassion doesn't take consideration of the cost. And then finally, even if it goes against the prevailing social and religious taboos. Understand that when Jesus introduced the Samaritan as the hero of this, he dropped a bomb right in the middle of that whole setting. And I, we don't have time to go into extreme detail, but there was a lot of tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. They had a shared heritage, but about uh, 400 years earlier, some things happened to where uh, the, their neighbors to the north, the 11 tribes, and you may remember the pastor talking about this, they were conquered by the Assyrians. The Assyrians uh, interbred with them, and so there were a lot of half-breeds, and their theology got twisted, and so there was a lot of tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. And there were some fighting, and there were some battles, and the Jewish people despised the Samaritans. They were at the lowest level of the Jewish socioeconomic scale. And so for Jesus to suggest that the Samaritan is doing this was blowing their minds. But for the Samaritan to do it was extraordinary because there were all kinds of social and religious taboos at work that he was going against. He not only faced the prospect of uh, retaliation from the Jewish people, he could face the same thing from his own people, the Samaritans. But he did it anyway. He was not so concerned about social expectations and cultural expectations or even religious expectations. He saw a person in need and he crossed all of those barriers in order to meet that need. And so loving our neighbors ourselves means applying compassion in a practical, tangible way to meet needs, even if it's risky or messy or costly or goes against all of our taboos. What would this look like today? I imagine this scenario. I grew up in, uh, my, uh, my father pastored uh, churches in northern Mississippi, and so I'm very familiar with the context that I'm about to, to give you. Imagine, if you will, uh, a young Afri African-American male who's a, a veteran of the Iraqi war. He lives in Birmingham, and he's traveling to Atlanta for a, uh, a job interview. And the job interview uh, raises the prospects of his career just uh, skyrocketing. And so uh, everything's promising, and he's heading down the highway, but there's an accident down the road, and so Google Maps or Waze, whichever you prefer, uh, gives an alternate route. He gets off the highway, and he's going through some of the rural routes. And that in and of itself is gonna present a challenge, but he's driving down the road. It looks like he's gonna to get to his interview on time. He goes over a rise, and just as he comes over the hill, he looks, and there is uh, a Ford F-150 pickup truck off the side of the road, upside down. And as he approaches, he sees a Confederate flag in the back of that window. 
and all kinds of white supremacist bumper stickers on the truck. And he's got to decide, okay, do I stop or do I keep on going? He stops because he sees something over in the grass and his suspicions are confirmed. There is a man over there. The man has all kinds of swastikas and uh, white supremacist tattoos all over his body, but he notices and one of his arteries has been severed and the man is about to bleed out. So he doesn't have a tourniquet with him. He rip, whips off his belt. He wraps it around the arm. The guy's just halfway conscious, wraps it around the arm, stops the bleeding. And then he decides he's got to call 911. And he calls 911 knowing full well that some police officers are going to show up. Now in Trumbull, a person in that situation wouldn't have to worry about police officers. But in some rural parts of the South, that's a very dangerous move. But he does it anyway and he stays until the cops and the EMTs come and they get him in the ambulance. And he doesn't just take off and head on to Atlanta. He follows the ambulance to the hospital and then he meets with the family who's been notified and he tells them, uh, I think he's going to be okay. I had to deal with this kind of thing in Iraq and, and everything's going to be okay. That's the kind of loving your neighbor because that was risky. That would be messy. That would be costly. He missed his interview, so he didn't get the job. And it went against all kinds of cultural and religious taboos. But that's what it means to apply compassion in a tangible way to somebody in a deep need. So, let's imagine if it were applied today. What would that look like today? Imagine if these were applied by Christians who were at opposite extremes of the uh, social uh, standards, political standards, economic standards. I, I don't think I've ever seen a time in our nation where it's not just the nation. I've seen Christians at opposite ends politically, culturally, uh, economically, who are at war. What if Christians started seeing those opposites as neighbors to whom, for whom I should express and demonstrate love and compassion? What if this were applied in families? There may be some spouses who've reached a point where loving my spouse is risky. It's not safe. I'm going to be hurt if I love my spouse. It's messy. It's, it's ugly. It is costly. And it's going against some of the things that I hold dear. Or my sibling. Or any, uh, I have a relative who is an absolute idiot. None of you have ever experienced that, of course. But, I mean, he's off the wall. He's out of his mind. How can he have these views that he has? What if we loved that idiot relative as we love ourselves? What if we ex demonstrated that same kind of compassion? What about coworkers? What if there is a coworker at my office 
who has taken a stance in some of these social and political uh, areas that just drives you crazy. What if you chose to love that neighbor in your office place as yourself? I'd like to submit to you the ultimate model of loving your neighbor as yourself. And that is the person of Christ himself. One of the passages that has become a foundational passage for me uh, is Philippians 2, uh, starting in verse 5. It says, Have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality as, with God as something to, to be grasped, or literally in the Greek, to be clung to, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being found in human likeness. And being found in the form of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. My brothers and sisters, I submit to you this morning that that is the ultimate example of love that was risky, that was messy, that cost him everything and crossed over every potential barrier that we could ever imagine. That was love. It wasn't the warm fuzzy. It was seeing our need, our sin, our disobedience, and knowing that we were so far sunk down in the sewer of our sin that we could never pull ourselves out. And because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, because of that kind of love, Jesus came from a palace, from the ultimate existence in royalty, leaving that behind, and not just coming in the form of a human, but taking on the form of a bond servant, from the highest possible rank that we could ever imagine, the highest status to the very lowest status. It was risky. It was messy. It cost him everything, and it crossed over all kinds of barriers, but so that we would have the opportunity to be forgiven, to place our faith in him, and be restored to a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. I would encourage you this morning to be thinking this week, and here's your assignment, be thinking today and this week, what people has God placed in my life that aren't necessarily easy to love? Stop and think right now, and it's probably not going to be difficult. Who is that person in my family, at work, in my community, in my arena? that is at the opposite extreme of where I am? And how can I tangibly demonstrate love for him or her? How can I have the, the kind of compassion that will take action to meet need? It may be a need of time and listening. It may be just a need for praying and caring. 
It may mean saying, Father, show me how I can demonstrate compassion. Show me a need. Open the door for me to show compassion. Because when we do that, we reflect the image of Christ who did that for us. In the next few weeks, you're going to have the opportunity to see how this applies in several scenarios, in how it applies to ministering to international students and professors, how it applies to ministering and reaching out to teenagers. Talk about messy, risky. How it applies to ministering to the homeless and those with addiction issues in Bridgeport. How it applies to ministering to women with unwanted pregnancies and offering alternatives to abortion. That, folks, checks every one of those risky, messy, costly, crossing borders. But as we do that, as we ask the Lord to show us how can we be your examples, your models of compassion in the world, the Lord, if we are open to it, the Lord will give us incredible opportunities to reflect His loving nature to a world that desperately needs to know what love looks like. I'm going to invite Brandon and the team to come back up. But let me close in prayer as we do. Father, thank you for loving us that much. Thank you that your love was not safe. It was risky. Thank you that you weren't worried about being neat and clean. You showed love that got messy. Thank you for a love that was not easy. It was costly. And thank you for a love that wasn't convenient or comfortable. It crossed over every barrier to reach down to us. Now, Father, it is our desire, it is our earnest desire and plea that you would help us to be accurate reflections to a world that desperately needs to understand your love and how you poured it out for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.